You're listening to Three Makes Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Repnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Three Makes Baby is all over the world in terms of people listen to this podcast from all over the world. But today we have I have a new a country represented Emma from New Zealand is joining today. Hi, Emma. Hello. And, um, Hello. <laughs> we were chatting a bit before I started recording about the name. She's part of an Instagram account of several people um, from New Zealand, and it's called Donor Conception. I'm going to mess this up, but I'm going to try Altero. Is that right? That's pretty good. Okay. Yeah, it's a, val- a valiant attempt. So we're Donor Conceived <laughs> Aotearoa. Um, which is a Maori word for New Zealand. Yeah. So um, in New Zealand, we try to honor Maori heritage wherever possible. Yeah, that's so cool. Donor conception touches lives all over the world, not just in one specific country. And there, I have found similar feelings across the board, no matter what part of the world you're in. So it's nice to hear your perspective and your story. And I'd love to learn more about what brought you to the kind of Instagram world of of being more out there uh, with education and information to share with others? Yeah, so um, I was conceived in 1979 and born in 1980 in New Zealand, and it was a time of great secrecy. Um, there were no records kept of anything, and I found out I was joint conceived when I was 11, and I'm turning 42 this year. So I've known that I was joint conceived for a long time, um, I've had, you know, like 30 years to kind of get used to it, I guess. Um, How did you find out? Uh, so my parents were divorced and my mum uh, told me and my sister after the divorce. So I, I think she felt like she couldn't tell us. Um, my dad didn't want to tell us or mm-hmm. let me clarify that. They never discussed telling us um, and she felt like we should know, but she felt she couldn't tell us while um, they were still married. Okay. Um, so you waited till they were divorced yeah. to tell you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And so um, because there were no records kept, I never thought that I would find out who the donor was. And um, mm-hmm. in more recent years, my mum had encouraged me to do a DNA test to try and find him because she knew that he would be, you know, relatively old um, and that he could die before I found him, which has, yeah. has happened to some other donor conceived people. Um, mm-hmm. But for many years, I didn't do anything about it. Um, I just, I was worried about maybe what I would find. I was maybe worried about getting my hopes up and then not finding anything. Yeah. It's a lot to open up. It's vulnerable. Definitely. Yeah. I, I didn't mm-hmm. know how I felt about giving my DNA to a company um my sister has a different donor so what if I found mine and she didn't find hers or something Mm -hmm. like that so it all came about because she ended up she did submit a DNA test and she didn't find anything and I then felt a bit guilty because I thought well what if um if I did a DNA test maybe I could find out more information um my mum didn't even know like where the donors had come from she didn't know she always was convinced that it was a doctor at the hospital but she didn't know that. And so I thought um, if I found my donor, maybe that would give us a, another clue to then find my sister's donor. 
So okay. part of the reason that I did the DNA test is I wanted to help her. I didn't want to hold out um, my own feelings and then she suffered as a result. So oh, I, see. I did a DNA yeah. test last year and mm-hmm. found the donor and that then led mm-hmm. to a process of, I guess, having to kind of come to terms with being a donor-conceived person. So in that last 30 years, I'd never spoken to another donor-conceived person. I wasn't in any Facebook group, so I'd never really, like, identified myself as that. I'd never talked to yeah. my friends about it. Um, mm-hmm. I had to really, I had to, I went through a whole thing. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> mm, Okay. Yeah. It was quite confronting to have to say, oh my gosh, this is who I, I am. Yes, I know. It's, yes. And what about it felt not good? What about it felt, you know, hard to accept? Was this, was it perception of it or this, was it the missing piece of not knowing him? Or? I think the missing piece for me was, was a really big thing like day to day I wasn't thinking about it at all you know I probably could go for years and not really think about it but mm-hmm. um definitely you know and a lot of people say this it was maybe when they were having medical investigations you know people would say oh you know what have you got a family history of cancer have you got you know a family history of yes. infertility or um having to do like life insurance uh, questionnaires and they would ask you about you know what did your grandmother die of and so forth and I would yeah. not know the answers to those things and I would have to right. tell the doctor or tell the person interviewing me and say you know I, I don't yeah. know that was really hard so was that it not is, knowing yeah. I think was um uh, you know like an inner wound for me an inner wound yeah and uh you didn't know how to answer it and it brings attention to it. Yeah. And then it makes you feel like you're missing something that other people ha- have. Um, well, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, I guess. <laughs> I shouldn't speak for you, but um, I, I don't know. I know what that feels like. Never really, it was still a, a source of some, some societal internalized shame um until I just really confronted it and was like what the heck I can't why should I feel the same for something I had no choice mm, in absolutely know? so I, yeah, I didn't choose this this happened to me before I was you know born essentially and now here I am and I gotta make the best out of my story but it, it sucks because you like kind of run from your story for a while and it sounds like you kind of did too like yeah. I did I ran for a long time like oh let me do all these other things and yeah definitely um, because of that, just basic information that everybody knows, like, oh yeah, my, my grandma had cancer and my, yeah, I definitely had like a refrain inside that was like, you don't know who your father is. And that was like a constant repetition at times, just in the background whispering to me. Um, but basically once I found out and I went through this whole, like really confronting process of, um, looking at Facebook groups and starting to read other people's stories. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, so many people have had um, difficult experiences and I've just felt so, I never really, I never knew that how, I guess my people, what's happened to them. And I felt a lot of empathy for Mm -hmm. them and I felt upset as well. 
and it led to um, me speaking to trying to conceive people for the first time in my yeah. life um, and meeting up with other uh, women from mm-hmm. New Zealand and we formed, it sort of just randomly happened, just formed this advocacy group, which is what Donna Conceived Aotearoa is. And yeah, we've all got different skills, but we're all from a similar era um, in New Zealand, Donna mm. Conception history. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we've sort of organically mm-hmm. grown um, and it's really, really helpful to have that support from mm-hmm. other people. And also they've all got different experiences and they've all got different perspectives. And some of them have been in the donor conceived world for a long time and, and others less so. And so I think mm-hmm. just to help even explore my own feelings, to explore my own understanding, to bounce ideas off, um, it has mm-hmm. been incredibly supportive and I guess healing to a, to a certain extent. And then I guess, you know, us coming together and feeling like we've all got busy lives, you know, people have jobs, they have families, like we don't have a lot of time, but combined, you know, we can combine our resources to push forwards and advocate for donor conceived people, which you've seen mm-hmm. in our Instagram account, but also yeah. working with um, some fertility clinics in New Zealand. We're starting the process of that um, to help raise awareness of donor conceived people's perspectives. I mean, some of these people working in these clinics, they have never spoken to a donor conceived person and That's right. their understanding of what might be important might not actually be as important as what donor conceived people think. Um, yeah. So it's been wonderful to start that process and feel like we're being treated respectfully and listened to and obviously we also have to respect they're running a business they have parents to deal with and so part of Instagram really helps us understand the bigger issues beyond our own you know I only have my experience but to hear about the experiences of other people and the experiences of parents um, is hugely informative and that really guides um, I guess what messaging we're trying to get across um, things mm-hmm. that are realistic, things that are practical, things that are, are kind and come from a place where we want to heal and make things better um, mm-hmm. for the whole family, the donor conceived person and the parents um, and the extended family beyond that and donors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was sort of how, yeah. don- in a very long-winded way, that was how donor conceived Aotearoa came about. Yeah, and I love that. I love how you educate in a way that is helps people to understand really complex feelings and topics about being donor conceived. You explain it in a way that really um, simplifies it. And that's hard. It's hard to, to simplify or, or, you know, compare something that's very complex to something a little bit more easy to understand in everyday life. It's hard to do that, but you do that with your account. And I've seen it really make a difference with recipient parents that are learning and wanting to learn that, you know, with your examples, they're like, they can, things really click and then go, okay, oh, I get this. That makes sense. Um, so I, I appreciate that, uh, what you're doing. That's, that's what I find to be super helpful. Well, you know, thank you. We, it- it's nice to know that it's um, landing well with some people. And certainly like we do get amazing lovely supportive feedback from parents um, mm-hmm. 
say that things are making a difference and that's all we want to do we only want the best for their child ultimately it's not about me it's not about the other people in the group um Mm -hmm. it's it's healing in a way for me but that's not why we're here we're here um to try and make a difference for the future and you are making a difference I know that just for those that I have people reach out to me privately a lot that I mean even young people that say they're they just found out they were donor conceived and they're in, they're in pieces and they don't know what to do and they don't know who to talk to and they feel so alone. So just hearing your story, hearing people like you go through this, it makes them feel less alone and it makes them feel valid, valid in what they're, they're experiencing. And, you know, the rest of sort of the majority world, the majority people in society don't understand the complexities so much. And so they tend to minimize some of these concerns and feelings. And when somebody feels like what they're feeling is somehow wrong or weird or different, or doesn't make sense, it doesn't make those feelings go away. It just makes you kind of try to bury them. And then when you try to bury them, it just creates a sense of a fracturedness in, in your sense of self. So then that's getting into kind of some more psychological stuff, but mm-hmm. I think just, you know what I mean? Just like for someone Absolutely. to hear that, Hey, you're Emma and you went through this and you, this is how you feel. And you're a completely normal person. And this is what you feel is normal. Yes. That people need to hear that. They yeah. really, really do. And look, I think we can apply the same thing to parents, you know, and, and we try to create a safe space where yes. parents can be and parents are at different stages of their journey of acceptance and processing. And, you know, there might not necessarily always be places where parents who are further along can can come be together and say, look, I have accepted these perspectives and I have changed the way things have been done. Mm -hmm. So I think, Mm -hmm. you know, they go through a whole process as well. And, you know, in a completely different way, there's still a huge amount of trauma and looking at your identity yes. and who you are and what it means to be a parent and what does family mean and putting your own ego aside for the child. Like there's so much stuff. Um, oh, so yes, if true. we can mm-hmm. create a place where DCP can be there and parents can be there together and we can learn from each other, that's really mm-hmm. what we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great thing. So, and I know that um, parents, you, you brought up parents and kind of how they need a place and a support and a place to be able to share some of the feelings that they're experiencing. And just as they're transitioning and learning to embrace a new story for themselves, even mm. um, how do you, would you have any, anything that you would share with parents about that, you know, I know you're very empathetic and compassionate towards, towards parents. And that's, that's what I've noticed on your account. So what would you share for those parents that, you know, are they're working hard, they're pushing themselves forward. They're wanting to grow. They're also needing that little, maybe sliver of hope (laughs) or that sliver of encouragement. Um, Mm -hmm. is, is there anything that you would want to share? Um, I think one thing would say is daughter conceived people can grow up to be extremely, successful, amazing, curious, um, you know, happy people at times. But, you know, nobody is happy all the time. That would be unnatural. Mm -hmm. And then it wouldn't maybe feel like happiness Mm -hmm. anymore. Like you do need the highs and lows to um, have that contrast. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have had a great life. I've traveled the world. I've had all sorts of like 
weird and wonderful and fun experiences. You know, I've, I've been to university, I have a great job, I have a family. Um, you know, we, we ha- I've done so many things and I can be a donor conceived person and have had things in my life that maybe haven't gone perfectly uh but that's kind of the same for every human you know like mm-hmm. no one has the perfect childhood no one has like the perfect sort of story um but yet with the right i guess support and love mm-hmm. you can still be whole and we mm-hmm. can't say that you're going to be happy all the time or sad all the time or anything we don't know how people are going to turn out but with the support of parents and the understanding of parents, that is huge, you know, and yeah. in terms of for anyone, whether they're donor conceived, whether they're mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. LGBTQ, whether they're anything, you know, to just feel like you can be yourself and be encouraged to be who you are. And I mean, that would, I would say is one of the things my mum did do well, despite like the limitations of the system at the time, mm-hmm. she told me, she wanted to tell me, um, and although I said to her, look, well, why didn't you tell me earlier? She said, but you wouldn't have understood. And I said, well, actually now the thinking is you should tell me before I understand so that it's not a transition of before and after. It's just I've always mm-hmm. known. So she told mm-hmm. me, great. And that would have been hard to like get the courage to tell an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old when they could understand what that mm-hmm. meant. Um, but mm-hmm. she still, she did it. She got the courage up and she told me. She always Do you supported- remember? Any feelings then of feeling any, did you have any feelings of like um, instability or feeling insecure about, oh, whoa, like there's this missing person now and I didn't know about that person before and now I do. And did that make you feel anything at the time Do you, that you remember? Um, it was really bad. Yeah. Um, because mom didn't do the way she told me, she was really upset. And she was crying and she had told my stepdad and he was there and he was crying and they were like, come into this room and we're going to tell you this thing. So it wasn't really presented as a kind of like, you're okay. This is okay. We can do this together. It was like, I've got really bad news to tell you basically. Oh, okay. And I felt embarrassed that she told my stepdad before me Mm -hmm. um, because I didn't feel that close to him and it felt like really personal information. I felt, I guess, a bit betrayed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So because it was personal information and you needed your time to process it first and you didn't know it was brand new to you. So it's, and it's very personal and private and having not processed it at all because you didn't know it, then, yeah, that would certainly, that's a good point. You need that time to process that by yourself before someone else that you're not close to knows that totally makes sense. Even as, you know, as a 10 year old, cause 10, you're still old enough to have, you know, you, you we can respect 10 year olds, right? It's just mm. kids are still, I'm, all, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in respecting our kids big. I mean, that's my kids have, from the beginning. I've always told them I will respect, I, you respect me and I will respect you and we respect each other. So um, I mean, even when they're little, so 10 years old is still a you, we want to respect a 10 year old's needs and wishes. And, um, so you didn't, so you were embarrassed and and found out at the time, did it make you feel, and and you may not remember, but did you feel any turn, a sense of like anxiety about your place in the world? And, and, you know, were you afraid of your mom, like leaving or anything, or were you, did you have any issues around 
abandonment that came up at that time? Um, definitely not from her. And I never discussed it with my dad. Um, there was a kind of a whole lot of stuff that went on at the time. Like there was the divorce. Um, she told me a lot of stuff like that he'd done to her around their relationship, which then made it hard for me to look at him in the same way and then Mm -hmm. drop a bombshell of, well, you're also donor conceived. That was a lot Mm. for me to process. She sort of took me on as a bit of a confidant, which um, as a Mm. 10, 11-year-old, I did not have the, like, capacity Mm. to really process that. Mm. Um, So it was just, it was hard. I mean, outwardly, I probably seemed just the same, you know. Yeah, I, in my book, I do talk about that not to share donor conception with your child during a big transition like that, like a divorce or a death uh, in the family um, to wait until things have become a little bit more stable because it's so destabilizing already to do that. (laughs) Yeah. She got emotional when she told you. And if we know now that, you know, definitely, well, not everybody knows, but I guess we should share now that it's so, so important to do the work as a parent before that moment to prepare as best you can and know there are resources out there to help you. So Mm -hmm. before you tell, so you have your groundedness and your steadiness for your child. So, cause you don't want to go and give them a rocky boat. I think that would have made a huge difference if, if it had been presented in a slightly different light at a different time, it, it probably would have affected me in a different, completely different way, which Mm -hmm. makes sense. Of course it would have, Mm -hmm. you know, any big news, if you present it one way or another, people are going to, it's going to land differently. It's like when we're, doing an Instagram post, we've got, you know, a message, but if we present it with one sort of tone versus another, people are going to take that information on completely differently and Mm -hmm. it's going to either harm them or help them. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were starting to say kind of other things that she did, maybe that were helpful though. Yeah. Yeah. She, she always supported me like any interest I had, whether it was the violin or the drums or jazz (laughs) ballet or gymnastics Mm -hmm. or, anything she fully encouraged all of that and so I never ever felt like any part of me was shut down Mm -hmm. I never had any sense that she looked at me and said I don't recognize that or that's from the donor Mm -hmm. she fully embraced just Mm -hmm. me for me 100% as you would for any child hopefully you notice that they really like gardening you're going to give them the opportunity to you know plant seeds and dig in the dirt Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. So there was, I never had any sense of being minimized or denied. I was fully encouraged to oh, be whatever wonderful. I wanted to be. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think my mum felt very guilty that the donor was anonymous. And I think she felt like it was really important to know who he was. Okay. And she had tried to get in touch. She'd, she'd talked to social workers at the clinic. She'd asked them to go through the records. She'd talked to the nurses. She had tried within the capacity that she had in the 80s mm-hmm. to get information. Um, but the problem was at that time there was no information. I don't even know if there was a record in the file saying that donor sperm was used. Yeah. There was nothing. Probably not. And there was no information like eye colour, height, nothing, zero. Mm-hmm. She didn't even know where the donor came from. So it was like a huge black hole. Um and I think maybe other people with anonymous donors, they probably have a lot more information than what we had, you know, even if they knew the eye colour, even if they knew 
where they recruited the people from. Um, and a lot of donor packets mm-hmm. are now really detailed. There's photos, there's, you know, voice recordings, um, there's like maybe a little essay, like there's a lot more information. So anonymous back then was truly like just a black hole of nothingness. Oh, that's just, oh, I'm wrapping my head around that because y- you have nothing to go on. Not like nothing. And I think that was a big part of the problem for me that I had nothing to cling on to. Um, my mom always wanted me to be a doctor because she was convinced that the donor was a doctor because she went in for the procedure and there was no frozen sperm back then. And then the sperm just appeared. So she always assumed that she'd, he'd just grabbed the doctor from the corridor and, mm-hmm. you know, got him going and then inseminated her. So it was no, there was no IVF. It was all like artificial insemination. Oh, IUI. That, that kind of, yeah. you know, just making it all come together. Yeah. Yeah. So it would. Um, mm-hmm. And so she always wanted me to be a doctor, I guess, because she thought that that's, maybe okay who I okay. was yeah like part of who so I was So it was a narrative she clung on to and then passed on yes. to you yeah. and is is do you mind sharing is he a doctor no <laughs> okay so that's a false narrative we, yeah 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 so what we um have now discovered from that era the professor who was running this clinic um he was recruiting the husbands of his obstetric patients so they oh. already had at least one or two children he approached the wife first and said we're looking for donors would you um be happy for your husband to be a donor and so wow. it's completely different from what's happening now it was completely altruistic there was no payment or okay. compensation of any kind and the family the, the the wife and the husband had to consent um okay yeah interesting very interesting yes. Yeah. yeah. And you contacted him. Did you contact yes. him? Yeah. Yes. How did so, that go? Yeah, he's he's lovely and very uh welcoming. And um he's, you know, encouraged me to get in touch with his children and um get to know them. And he's in New Zealand. I live in Australia now, so I haven't actually met him. We've talked on uh okay. Zoom and we email back and forth. How has that been for you? It's so Is- weird. It's so weird because I feel <laughs> like it's so strangely easy. And oh, yeah. the way he kind of phrases things and talks, I feel like <laughs> we have this kind of synergy, even though like he's an 80-year-old man. <laughs> yeah. Funny. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but so what cool. is funny I'm so glad is you got to meet him. His um sort of profession ended up being in computers and computers when mm-hmm. I was at university I loved computers and oh my gosh and yeah. I don't know I just wonder if my mom had known that maybe she would have mm-hmm. encouraged me to take it further mm-hmm. yeah let's see like because you had this false narrative and then mm-hmm. you're trying to like fit into a false narrative which I know hey I know that can happen in fully biological families too you know we have the, the whole parents that try to force their kids to be something they're not. So I'm not just saying that that's not just unique to the donor conceived, but it does make it harder when you actually just don't have the information at all. Mm. And you want to, like your mom wanted to really, you know, see you and, and help you, but she just didn't have the right information to do that. So yeah, yeah, that's a vote for having the information and 
And, you know, again, just because you have it doesn't mean that that's what your child's going to be either. It's just, you're just there to just notice as a parent, just notice. That's so neat that. And so when you, do you feel by knowing that information, did it make you feel less um, kind of discomfort around the talking about your, your biology or your medical records and things? Oh, it was huge. I mean, even before I had spoken to him, the moment that I found out that he existed, that, you know, I had a name and I would be able to know who he was. It was like Mm -hmm. one of those big old locks with a huge key. It went clunk, Mm -hmm. you know, and you Mm -hmm. could, the cog clicking against things. I just felt this turning inside me that Mm -hmm. the black void just evaporated. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And that you were folk that there was an answer. And you were just like everybody else now, you know, that you had that connection and a place that you came from biologically, genetically. And many people who don't know who a parent is, whether that's through donor conception or other ways that that occurs, feel, yeah, like there's a missing piece of the puzzle. And, you know, so many organizations do use that puzzle kind of metaphor. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually have on my list of things to do today. Apparently there's a video of, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. Um, mm, I love him. There's a video. He didn't, I don't know. I haven't looked at it yet, but he didn't know who his biological father was and he's talking mm-hmm. about it and mm-hmm. really is quite emotional about it. And so that's mm. kind of on my list of if Eddie Vedder feels like that, maybe people might not respect donor conceived people all the time, but they might respect Eddie Vedder, you know. That is on, now that's on my list to watch because that is my absolute favorite band growing up. <laughs> That was a huge Pearl Jam fan. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and speaking of that, that just, can we give you a reference to um, the time frame and kind of how old we are? I want, I believe you're older. You're, you're not in your twenties, right? No, no. So I'm 42 this year. Yeah. That's what I, so I want people to know that because I think a lot of times when people listen, they think um, maybe this is what young people feel and they're still trying to figure out their identity, but it's really important to know this is like a lifelong thing. Identity never ends and it's a lifelong thing. And even if you look at, um, as we get further down into adulthood, if we continue to grow, then the identity will become even more important, especially as we have our own children and health issues, like you mentioned, come up that it, it's a lifelong process. Um, it doesn't end in adolescence and, that's been, sh- that's been proven with research through um, adoption research. So um, I think you and I talked about being adopted, the lifelong search for self. And it's my favorite adoption book because independent researchers were involved in, in the, the writing of the book and the studies behind it. They were not adopted themselves. And they talk about at each different stage of development, what, what the kind of the psychological and developmental challenges um, and aspects that people universally go through and it's, it's really, really amazing. So, I mean, you're right. It doesn't matter if you lost a parent through, uh, or to dis, you know, have a disconnect through genetic links through um, adoption or donor conception or through like the, even like the death of a parent exactly. or just never knowing like Eddie Vedder never knew, yeah. um, all of that is a, it's a loss. And we know that, the, um, children experience loss in different ways, divorce or death. Um, and then in your case, donor conception. So you had well, you didn't have death, but you had, the, you had two out of three of the big major losses a, a 
a person can experience. Well, loss. my dad actually died when I was 15. So, oh my gosh, you had all three. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's a lot. I mean, that's a huge, you know, for you to go through all, all three of those. And then for the, the other two divorce and death, we have formally recognized traditions and a kind of things that we do to support someone through that, but we don't have it for a loss of a parent in the form of a donor conception or, or adoption, or even for a loss of a parent like Eddie Vedder, who never knew we don't have a way to formally recognize that loss and support a person through that loss. Mm-hmm. And I hope that I, I, I hope that what, you know, eventually, you know, if I had a, like a grand vision for, you know, where we're heading with all of this, I would love that there is, at the moment, it feels like um, people start out on a donor conception journey, like parents, and they almost have a default position of not telling the child and they have a default position of, um, the donor is just a donor and they have a default position of, you know, not necessarily trying to fully recognise the other parts of the child that maybe come from the donor. I would love that we can totally change that. And, you know, just like there's funeral rights and, and processes around divorce, maybe we can have like an expectation or a normality around donor conception. This is normal. It's normal to tell your child. It's normal to... Mm-hmm. Um, support them to connect with the donor at some point in their lives. It's normal to know the donor conceived siblings at an early age. It's normal to celebrate um, the parts of the child that you don't necessarily recognize. So if we can completely switch it around and, and have things that people, when they enter into this process, they know that's how we do it. You know, it's okay. It's not going to fix every single problem. Not everybody's going to turn out, you know, happy and, and, you know, rose tinted glasses, but mm. we're doing our very best right from the start. That is what everyone is telling you is the right way. Everyone is telling mm. you is the best way. This everyone's telling you is the most loving and supportive and kind way to do this process. Um, yeah, just completely change it on its head, and that we build a framework so that people aren't flailing around in the darkness trying to figure it out. That there is a way. Mm-hmm. I I couldn't agree more, and I, I have to tell you, I love love, love my rose colored glasses. I have them on quite a bit of the time in life. And sometimes when they get ripped off my face for various reasons, you know, life hits you in the face. I, I, I I struggle a bit and I miss them because it is a coping. It's a coping mechanism for a story that is, is hard to sometimes deal with. Um, and so you choose, like you chose that. I chose that silver lining and the rainbow after the storm. And it's just, some, it's a theme that comes up over, over and over again for me. And it, it continues to give me hope. And I believe that for other people too. Um, and that's not to minimize the pain we have to walk through or the suffering of the loss, but to give hope that there is a silver lining. And I do believe that just like you said, we, it, with the tools and the skills of connection and understanding and empathy, that's how we because that's how we get through all of this. It's not by one position or the other, or I'm check up, check a box and I'm done. It's just giving this, it's just creating this connection and pathway between people to allow them to talk about things and to embrace and accept whatever they're coping with. So they don't feel alone. I think that's essentially what it's all about. You're not going to have like resolution all the time. Mm. And that's okay. You don't have to, some things are just not solvable, you know, and, and that it doesn't have to be, to be okay. It doesn't have to be, to be at peace and to be good and to feel wonderful. I, I can say that because I've lived it and walked through it and 
I found that place and that's, it's hard to, to get other people there. And there's certainly challenges, but I believe it's there. I know it's there. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have hope and I, I hope that, you know, our small stone in the advocacy world can help other people both on an individual basis, but also then help other advocacy groups and then, you know, roll on to even produce things that we can release at globally through mm-hmm. the whole Donor Conceived Network to fertility clinics, mm-hmm. to sperm banks, um, to counsellors to say, look, you know, you might not be aware of these little nuances, which would make a huge difference to people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, just to, to share kind of, because you're right. I mean, that all the bits of information that people learn that don't hear any, they don't hear it anywhere else. They're not going to hear this anywhere else because people don't know it for the most part, mm-hmm. but all these little bits can make a difference in uh, someone's life. And, mm-hmm. you know, even if they don't go to level, let's just say level 10 of, you know, some parents, well, they want to go all the way and they're, they're just gung ho. And then some parents just kind of dip their toe in the water, but even just dipping your toe in the water can make a huge difference. Like, so I just say, whatever you're doing, keep doing it and, and congratulate yourself for just listening to this podcast even. And so it's, it, I mean, I just do, I believe that it's kind of a ripple effect and, and then just, I will just say like, there are two things that this work for me has done and um, the good and bad. And just to highlight this, the, the inherent conflict that comes in this, with this topic. And the bad thing is that the, the original wound of that we experience, I will just say we as adoptees and DCPs, the original wound that some of us experience um, of that we talked about the second class citizen, that you don't have this medical information, you feel different from other people, you don't have answers to genetic clues and, and mirroring, you don't know where you get certain things, you don't know, you know, all that stuff. That initial wounding, feeling kind of like an outsider a bit um, and feeling misunderstood is really hard. Perhaps the hardest part of it is feeling misunderstood by, by people and, and therefore not being able to find, to process that with anyone because no one else gets you. So you bury feelings. That re-wounding that has happened in the advocacy work is the hard part. That's the sucky part because every time you try to work with someone who doesn't get it, you're re-experiencing that same moment <laughs> that you did as a kid when they didn't get what you were going through and you're just supposed to be grateful and happy. And what's your problem? You know, mm. so you, you re-experience it. And it's like this wound that was just hard to heal it because you're constantly reopening it. Every time you try to teach somebody, Hey, this is the, these are the viewpoints that part's hard. And that part's tiring, very tiring and very takes a lot of strength, but the good part and what I gained from this and that I'm so happy for, and maybe it's what I was searching for all along. And the reason I did this work is that was finding people like you and connecting with others who did have this lived experience and understand. And that is like finding your tribe. And when you find people like that, they get it. And you don't have to explain, you know, it's just, it's a very, it's, it's like you find that place of solidarity, that place where you connect can connect and belong. So that's been the the silver lining for me in, in this advocacy work. How about for you? What would you say? has been your, your maybe good and your bad? Um, I think being here and 
as you say, you know, connecting with others that that get it, that you can resonate with and also refine your own ideas. You know, like it's a safe space to learn about issues that you don't really understand because they're not your lived experience, but you feel confident asking people questions that are really sensitive topics so that you can get a better understanding and know that you're not going to be judged or um, they're not going to get angry at you. They understand that you're coming from a place of love. Um, Mm. I think that's really powerful. And also, you know, the feeling of almost like a high purpose, like Mm -hmm. Maslow's hierarchy, you know. Yes. Of (laughs) self-actualization. To feel like um, there's something really meaningful that we can do with this experience. And, you know, I have the skills and I have the understanding and because of my life and the things that I've been through and the training that I've had, I can convey information in a way that's maybe digestible and approachable and, um, and I'm happy to do it. And I get a lot of, you know, enjoyment out of feeling like I'm doing something really good with what's happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. Making meaning, finding purpose and, Mm -hmm. Um, you, it's like way you rewrite the story or you get to write the ending or not even the ending. Let's not say the ending. We're like, we're, yeah. we got a long way to go. You're just writing the, the chapters along and you get to kind of sail your own ship, um, now and what you didn't have control of before now you do. And this is how Absolutely. you can, you can do it and help others. And, oh gosh, it is, it is such a, you know, being the voice maybe that you wanted to hear when you were going through this, but couldn't find. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or like the information that my mom didn't have, you know, it didn't mm-hmm. exist. Um, so. Yeah. So definitely the more we can get information for kids um, about their original, you know, genetic parents, their biological parents, the, the donor, all these, there's a bunch of terminology um, that different terminology that people are using. And I know that's a hot topic too. Um and I don't know, again, maybe there's just no right answer that, well, there's no right answer. There's no one answer, right? There's m- many answers. So, yeah. Uh, and it's I, just, I think, uh, yeah. you know, talking to other donor conceived people about it. And I mean, this is one of the things that has been so interesting is me as a donor conceived person, and then talking to other donor conceived people, we do ne- definitely do not all agree. There is not like yeah. a right way because some people feel strongly about one thing. Some people feel completely strongly in the other direction. Um, yeah. And, you know, sometimes things that I feel really passionate about and they are totally, it's, it's so not right for that person. So, mm-hmm. you know, that and that can be quite confronting to hear the perspectives of other people and, and say, oh, my gosh, like, really? Um, so I get it from, you know, parents as well, parents hearing the perspectives of other people it's totally confronting. Yeah. It is. It really is. Um, but I still want to say in the conversation, I don't um, I don't necessarily get up my kind of like defensive barrier and say that they're wrong. I'm actually just more curious. And what's interesting is my um, donor, my biological father, has a family motto and it's curiosity, perseverance and happiness. And... <laughs> being curious about, well, why do they feel like that? You know, what's happened to them? Where is that coming from? 
rather than mm-hmm. saying you're wrong because mm-hmm. they're actually not wrong for them. That's yeah. how they feel mm-hmm. about that thing in at this place in their life. So um, although it's confronting to hear the perspective of, of others, there isn't a wrong way or, or, a, or a, right, a right way, or maybe there is a wrong way, but there's definitely not a right way. Um, and so when it comes to terminology, I think it's just really the most sensible thing is to just use all the words, you know. Yeah. Don't pick one, yeah. just use them all. And then that donor conceived person can then at different phases of their life pick and choose what feels mm-hmm. right for them at the time with no sense of any kind of emotional pressure or overlay or guilt that they're doing wrong by the parent by choosing one word or another the parent is just saying casually sprinkling the words around whatever you choose uh, is completely Mm -hmm. fine they the words have no power Mm -hmm. you know they're just words that's right that's right great great advice I love that I love that. And then for those that would say, um, I, there was a Dr. Phil episode recently that, that I haven't had a chance to write about, but where he said, you shouldn't use the term biological because it would confuse the kid. And that's the, the primary thought that when people argue and say, I don't want to use biological parent with my child when they're young is because it will confuse, it will, because it will confuse them. Um, and I would say to that, <laughs> that, uh, it, I, what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, then at what point there's going to be pros and cons. So then, you know, if we wait until say 10, like in your case, before you start using that term, is it going to be less confusing at 10 than it is at three? I think the point is it's going to be, it's going to be quote unquote confusing. If that's the label we want to give it at any point, you say there's going to be confusing feelings and there's going to be a processing that a child will go through and that you can help guide them through mm. also so though, the early children don't understand what words mean you know like mm-hmm. we teach them what ice cream is we teach them bicycle and if we teach them biological father that we have all this like background expectation of what that means the child has no idea they don't know what a normal family is they don't know what a you know a donor can see families they don't know anything um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I say to my child, you can marry a man or a woman as long as the mm-hmm. other person agrees. She doesn't know that other people might not think that. She only knows what I teach her. And so if yeah. I just say this is it, this is normal, this is like just how it is, it's fine, um, yeah. she will accept that. You know, they don't think, oh, my biological father is missing because they don't know what a biological father is. That's right. No, you're, you say it so well. You say it so well, because to maybe people get that confused because they, to them, a biological father is the, their person that also raised them. So to them, the way they were taught that word when they were little learning words, uh, that's the way they understand it. But, but to me, I was taught that my biological mother and father weren't the people that raised me. That was normal to me. So it wasn't confusing to me mm-hmm. um, because I was taught that word differently. So you're right. You raised such a great point. That's it's how, how you're taught, what you're taught that word means that ultimately your child will form an idea around. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have so, to be what the majority of people see. You're right. No. Exactly. Yeah. Great way of putting it. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fancy. You're so good at this. You're so good at, <laughs> you know, and making these really hard. I don't always get it right. That is for sure. But my oh, heart is in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. So great answer. Um, 
and I love, by the way, I didn't mean to gloss over what you said about um, curiosity and perseverance and, and happiness. Is that right? Perseverance yeah. and happiness. Yeah. I love that. I want to title the, um, this podcast that, except for, then I was like, but it's your biological father's words, not yours. And I want to honor what you would say too. So we'll talk about that later, but what no, to title it. But, I, I but think I love of it. myself, I really do identify strongly with him and it, as I said, it's it's given me such great healing and I've moved forwards uh, hugely in my own personal sense of self and like my place in the world and my place in my marriage, you know, my place with my friends, my children, like everything. So, yeah. um, you know, like it's it's just amazing. And I mean, I'm like I'm lucky in some ways. Some would say, oh, you know, you're not very lucky. But I'm so lucky that he's accepted me mm-hmm. and that he's willing to have that contact and share things mm-hmm. and, you know, develop a relationship. Um, not everybody gets that. And I think that is probably one of the hardest things um, to deal with. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, I've heard stories of people who are otherwise kind of fine, but then, you know, that rejection has just turned everything on their head of, who they thought they were um, and how they feel about it. It's, mm-hmm. it's massive. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, they might not be my words, but they are my heritage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they become my words. That's true. That's true. Well, good. Well, we'll, we'll leave it than that. I wanted to be sure and honor that your individuality as well. So, well, that is a great note to end it on. So I, it's been a pleasure an absolute pleasure to have you and to talk to you about this topic. Um, and I know people will really, really enjoy this episode. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Jenna. And look, thanks for your ongoing support. Um, it really means a lot to me to have built this friendship and, um, you know, to be, I guess, working together for the higher purpose. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow me for more content, you can find me on Instagram at Jana Rupnow LPC and Facebook. And you can also grab a copy of my book, Three Makes Baby, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and Target.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it and share 